0: Hey, good morning, everybody. How's DCF doing? <laughs> I'm going to jump right in. I've got a message this morning that's a little bit different, <clears throat> and I'm going to throw a lot of scripture at you. If you're kind of new to DCF, whether you're here or if you're online, uh, last couple of weeks I've been uh, light on the scripture, <laughs> and all that really means is I just kind of went deep into a, a few scriptures. Um, this week I'm gonna, I want to throw something at you that's it's a concept that's been just kind of bouncing around inside my spirit for the past... Um, Probably a year or more. And just been thinking about how I can bring it and what the value of it was. Um, my wife talks about the prophetic. When she teaches in the prophetic, one of the things she talks about is something being green. In other words, it's, you know there's fruit there. You can see it. Um, but it's not ready to pick yet. And so it's helpful sometimes to kind of leave it there and kind of let it finish doing what it's doing until you have some clarity on what it is you want to share. And, uh, and this message is a little bit like that. So I've been thinking about this concept of congruence. So let me just kind of give you a definition. Most people know what this means to some degree. Um, but it basically means a state of agreeing, coinciding, or harmony. And so it's, um, it's actually got a lot of different kind of concepts or a lot of different disciplines that you see it in. One is uh, congruence in geometry, which uh, I'm going to show you a picture of it. It's just a picture of two triangles, and they're the same shape and size. What's really interesting, though, is if you flip it and it's a mirror image, it's still congruent. I think that's a, it's a neat picture of how, how we are with Christ, you know, how we are in, in the Lord. It's like we're not Him but we should look like him. Does that make sense? Like he is the son of God. We're a son of God. And so at, at some point, there should be some congruence in who Jesus is and in who we are. Um, one scripture in First John says, as he is in the earth, so are we. It's talking about love. It's talking about his mission, his, his vision, his passion for, for, the, for the world. And so there's this beautiful thing in geometry, this congruence, that even if it's a mirror image, it's still congruent. And then there's another one in psychology. This is one that's fun. I like psychology. Um, there's a guy, most of you guys have studied him at some point. His name is Abraham Maslow, and he created or came up with this idea of the hierarchy of needs. How many of you guys remember studying Maslow? Yeah, most of us. And so um, he was a humanist psychologist. Um, and he basically, I'm going to put the, a picture of this up there. He had this, uh, this uh, hierarchy of needs. It starts from the bottom, and it's basically talking about your basic needs, uh, and it just kind of moves up the the pyramid and the concept was as you as you develop more and fulfill more of those needs then you get to the top and the top part of the the triangle is what he called self actualization um, and it, so it's basically being your true self he he kind of explained it this way this is one of the some of the phrases he used he says what a man can be he must be so in other words as you move up this this place and, and you see this when people who are broken um kind of progress and move into healthy and uh, more of health and maturity. And so he says, basically, even as a humanist, um, someone who's, you know, not necessarily starting with the picture of God, his mindset was that there's something about humanity that we should, we should go somewhere. We should mature towards something. We should, there is an ideal that we all should obtain, right? Um, not that we do. But according to his definition, it, it may be loosely described as the full use and exploit, exploitation of talents. Capabilities, potentialities—you kind of get it. So um, one of the one of the people's uh, one of the people he said was actualized, self-actualized was Abraham Lincoln. I'd have to agree with that. There's he, he named several of them. Funny enough, funny enough, a uh, lot of uh, atheists and a lot of uh, uh, psychologists, and a lot of philosophers. Um, not a lot of Christians did he put in there for some reason. Um, that's interesting. And then there's another guy. He was uh, his name was Carl Rogers, and so he talked about this thing about incongruence versus congruence, and he talked also about self-actualization. So he he was kind of the father of uh, a different a new kind of psychology where he made the you know the client the kind of the central focus and and was kind of talked nice to them rather than treating them as a sick person in the sense that you know we're just going to treat them as an object and they're not kind of there. He really moved into helping them discover what was going on in their own life. So anyway, some interesting stuff if, if you want to study into it. But um, his, his idea of self-actualization was this. It's, here's how he put it. He says that self-actualization occurs when a person's ideal self, and I'm going to give you a picture of this, is ideal self. Uh, in other words, who they would like to be is congruent with their actual behavior or their, their self-image. So it's, you know, it's the best you. Oprah Winfrey would put it, you know, the best you. Right. So, again, his whole idea was who you want to be equaling how you're actually behaving. So, in other words, the inside looking the same as the outside, right? So, the internal person that you are, you know, the person you argue with in the mirror on Sunday mornings. I don't know if you do that. I do that sometimes. Um, That that person should look the same on the outside as it does on the inside. But most of us know that that's not always the case. And what's interesting about these two guys is they were both humanists. And so all that really means, actually, Carl Rogers was brought up in a Christian home, and he actually went to two years of seminary. And then he decided it was a little bit too rigid for him, and he didn't want to do that. And so he stepped out of that, became an atheist, later became an agnostic, and toward the end of his life, um, people who knew him said he began to move back towards spirituality. And so he was, you know, his self-actualization was actually um, being corrected toward God's version of who he should be. And so that's kind of an interesting thing. But it's, in essence, a humanist begins with man. You, their starting place is you were kind of the all in all of what's going to happen. And so that kind of limits, if, as you and I know as Christians, that limits where we can go if we state or, or uh, just appeal to the humanistic mindset or the psychological mindset and we leave out the spiritual as- aspect of it. Because congruency in Christianity is about our, our outer lives lining up with our inner lives. So you see this in Matthew 23. Let me just read this to you. He's talking about Pharisees. This is Jesus talking to Pharisees, who should, if you're thinking as mature believers, so to speak, in the, in, the, in the history of Israel, they should be pretty self-actualized. And to some degree they were, but again, it was just them and their own internal self. But Jesus called them out and he says, It will be bad for you teachers of the law and you Pharisees. You're hypocrites. The hypocrites just means actor. It means you're acting out something, but you're not actually that thing. And so he goes on and he says... Um, you wash clean the outside of your cup and your dishes, but inside they're full of what you got by cheating others and pleasing yourselves. Pharisees, you are blind. First make the inside of the cup clean and good, then the outside of the cup will also be clean. And so that's kind of the journey, um, the journey for, for everybody, I think. Anybody who wants to grow and mature, they, they realize that, that what their value system might be doesn't necessarily line up with, their, with what they're actually doing. And so I'm going to get into that in just a second. But you see this this congruency, incongruency, in you know, big at work today in our leaders. Politicians setting policy. I don't know about you, but this makes me so angry. Politicians setting policy for the people and then doing something completely different. You know, the rules for you but not for me kind of thing. Celebrities are terrible about this. One of my favorites is the celebrities who are, you know, Uh, speak out against um, guns, and they'll say things like, you know, I don't think you should have guns for, what about for self-protection? Absolutely not, you know, you shouldn't do that. (laughs) While they travel 24-7 with like five guys with Uzis, you know, it's like maybe you're not carrying the gun, but you're so wealthy that you don't have to carry the gun, you have your servant carry the gun for you, right? So I don't know, but that, again, it just smacks of hypocrisy. And you see this in the church. One of the things I have conversation with people a lot of times in coffee houses and I ask them, you know, if they're, if they're out of church, I ask them why. And a lot of people have been hurt by church. And they'll just say, you know, there's so many hypocrites in church. I'm like, you act like there's no hypocrites outside of church. <laughs> I'm like we're in a coffee house. I bet you that guy behind the counter is probably a hypocrite, right? All, because all of us are. That's how we kind of start out. Like that, there's this, you know, this inconsistency in our lives. And, you know, and, and some of that is ignorance. Some of it you don't even know you're, you're doing that. Some of it is you don't care. But if, if we're all honest, you know, there's, there's a disconnect between what we ought to be and what, and what we actually are. And, and without God, that's really, there's a dissonance that literally never goes away. And that's kind of what we're talking through. So it's, it's interesting in the Bible, it speaks to this incongruence, especially in leaders. There's this really kind of weird passage in Exodus chapter 4. It's talking about Moses. And, uh, and one of his challenges is he had not, he had a, he had a son by a lady by, by the name of Zipporah. Um, when he was in the desert, when he'd gone away out into the desert. And he had this son, but he didn't circumcise him. And so they were supposed to hold to Abraham's, you know, the Abraham's uh, covenant. And part of that covenant was circumcision on the eighth, eighth day. And it was a cutting away of the flesh. There's, I'm not going to get into that, but there's a lot of reasons why. But listen to this passage. It's really fascinating. It says, And it came to pass on the way at the encampment that the Lord met him, this is Moses, and he sought to kill him. like, wow, that's, interesting. <laughs> that's an interesting thing to say. It says, Then Zipporah took a sharp stone and cut off the foreskin of her son and cast it at Moses' feet and said, Surely you are a husband of blood to me. So he let him go. So God let Moses go. Then she said, You are a husband of blood because of the circumcision. So this has confounded people for years and years. I remember the first time I read it, I'm like, What in the whole world? A husband of blood? What does that mean? And the whole picture of it was that Zipporah was not an Israelite. Right, and so when he married her, more than likely, what had happened was she. When he started talking about, you know, circumcising her eight-day-old baby, she threw a what we call in the south a hissy fit, (laughs) right, and said, "You're not doing that to my son." And so the the challenge, and and listen, if if you if you hadn't come from Israel and somebody brought that up, you, you think you'd be up for something like that, right? There's no way. It's like as a mother, why would you? That's horrible. But there was a point behind that, and especially as Moses as a leader, there was something that he had to model what God was requiring of them in that old covenant. He had to model that before the people, and he had not done that. And because of that, even though he was a a man who was favored by God, there was a sense of the Lord saying, I'm going to cut you off. And eventually, because of his disobedience, you see this um, later on in, in the Bible, you see that he was cut off because of his disobedience. Like he was supposed to speak to a rock, and rather than speak to a rock, he struck a rock, right? He struck the rock. And now God still moved on Israel's behalf, but the picture here is that he was a leader who had, who had a requirement to, to, to not just look a certain way, but to be that. He couldn't just, you know, I'm going to lead Israel, do as I say, but not as I do, right? You all need to circumcise your kids, but I'm not circumcising mine, right? And so, again, this dissonance just comes up over and over and over again, and the key around that was it was really about circumcision, and probably because Zipporah had not, probably didn't want that to happen, and he gave in, right? He, he gave in to that, and he probably shouldn't have. So there's interesting scriptures um, about this. It says, uh, this is uh, Mark chapter 3, it says, if a house is divided against itself, that house can't stand. Right? And so, if there's dissonance inside of you, if there, if you and your spouse are arguing about something, you can't get on the same page. That house is is shaky. If, you, if you've ever been in that scenario, you know what I'm talking about. Um, another one says, "Can two walk together?" This is Amos three. It says, "Can two walk together except they agree?" And so we kind of get that. I mean, like you know, how how far can you walk if you don't agree on the destination? Right. So like, hey, walk with me. Okay, where are you going? I'm going over there. Well, I'm not going over there. So I can walk with you for a little ways, but at some point we're going to part ways. So you see it, again, all over. Um, And here's just some examples just in life in general about this incongruence that we see on a regular basis. Like you see someone having an affair, but if you ask them about it, they believe in marital faithfulness. Do you, though? (laughs) That would be my question. So cheating on your taxes, you know, but you would say you value honesty. Do you, though? (laughs) Gossiping about a friend, even though you treasure your relationship. Like, you can't have it both ways is kind of what we're getting at, right? It's like, I I say these things, and then I do something entirely different. Hypocrisy. Here's an example of of an interesting one. Yelling at your spouse and kids, despite having been very hurt and injured by the same behavior from your mom when you were growing up. Ever find yourself doing that? (laughs) Right? It's like man, I'm just, I'm just like my mom, I'm just like my dad, I'm doing some of the same behavior I'm doing, and, and you don't want to be. And so there's that dissonance that comes. Um, spending You say you, you want to spend time with your family and friends, and it's the top of your priority list, but you neglect the relationships because you work so much. But you'll justify it and say, but it's because I love them. Like, man, you don't even know your kid. Right? Like, I see this all the time. You don't. You don't have one, one, An interesting one is is not paying attention to marriage, your marriage, and then your kids grow up, and you both of you poured so much time and energy and effort into raising your kids that for twenty years you haven't given any attention to your marriage, and then your kids leave you, as they do, and go off to college or get married and move out, and now you're sitting in the house with a stranger, right? So it's like, do you do you believe in you know working on your marriage? Absolutely. When's the last time you did that? See the dissonance. And so it, here's the challenge is what happens is it begins to lead, if you don't address this, it begins to lead to this inner turmoil that has to be quieted somehow. So this is what you find in psychology. Um, you, you, you hear things, phrases like coping mechanisms, like this is a coping mechanism, right? So you'll see things like uh, um, people numbing their conscience with drugs or alcohol in order to cope. You'll see people um, seeking escape, Right? Uh, and, and all of us have done this to some degree, some worse than others, but I, I know, like, Netflix is amazing, right? You pay a small amount of money and you get all these movies that you can, there's thousands of them. Usually I spend two and a half hours trying to find a movie that I'm going to watch. Anybody else do that? <laughs> Something weird about that. But, but what's interesting about it is this, you know, this, this, uh, this concept of, of just vegging, right, is often a coping mechanism of I just, I don't have any, any more energy to give. Right? And, and Karen and I have this conversation all the time about coming home from a tough day of ministry where I've maybe counseled somebody or had, you know, deal with some really, really challenging stuff. And I've and c- come walking in the door and there's just no energy to be with my wife and to, and to love her well. And to, so, we, you know, we try, again, it's a battle, and I get it, it's a battle. So we, we go for a walk, we take our dogs on a walk, and we do that as often as we can. Um, most every evening we do that. And so it's just one way of doing it, but we're having that conversation now. It's like we've got to find better ways, not better ways, but more ways to spend time together so that the things that need to come up can come up, right? So I say I love her, but am I actually loving her? See that, that dissonance. And so we all, we all, it's really a challenge. And there's, some, there's a couple of reasons. I'm just going to give you a few. One is ignorance. This is a reason for incongruence in our life. We find ourselves in kind of that disconnect. <clears throat> one of them is ignorance. I actually don't know that I can be congruent. I think everybody has to deal with this, and all, everybody's going through the same problems and situations because that's our experience, right? Our anecdotal experiences. Everybody is 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 incongruent, so we just kind of buy into the fact. Well, then I guess that's what I have to be because that's the way the world works. But it, that's not how it works scripturally. And here's the way that that works is is God's word can actually change. And move you into congruence. Let me just give you this really interesting psalm. It's 119.9. Some of you guys know it. This is, how can a young person stay on the path of purity? That's a really good question, especially today, right? Because I hear, I, we, we've done, my wife and I have done youth ministry, and and most of the time, especially young boys will say, it's too, it's too difficult. I can't, I, you know, I, I don't want to look at pornography, but it's just, it's pervasive in our society, and, and I can't. I said, and, and then the other the other thing they'll say is, you know, I don't understand why I have to struggle with this so much. You know, if, if God put this desire in me, why is it not okay to just fulfill it? I said, It is okay to fulfill it. This is what I always say it is okay to fulfill it within the measure that God has given you, within the confines of marriage. Fulfill it like crazy. <laughs> right? <laughs> so, but outside of that, don't, right? Because there's a reason why God, God's just, He's not just a, uh, you know, a joy killer. I mean, let's just be honest. Who came up with sex, in the first place, right? It, it wasn't the '60s, <laughs> right? It was God, and, and God's like, I, I, God's. I, can you imagine the conversation in the Trinity? It's like, so we, you know, we built the first two. Now, how are how are we going to make more of them? We're we just going to come back more dirt. And I imagine somebody said, "I have an idea." Wow, that's they gonna like that, right? <laughs> right? <laughs> and, and so that's the whole picture. Is again within within the reality that God has given there, that congruence can occur. But if you if you operate outside of it, it brings incongruence. It goes on. It says by living, here's how you how you pre- stay on the path of purity, by living according to your word. And then it's really interesting. It says, <clears throat> "I seek you with all my heart." So that's a challenge, right there. It's, It's not being ignorant. It's like, oh, I just, I must not be able to. And then it's kind of secretly somewhere in your heart going, that's difficult, so I'm not even going to try, right? He says, no, I seek you with all my heart. And he says, don't let me stray from your commands. Lord, help me to do what you've called me to do. And then, and this is, again, in the Old Covenant. It gets even better in the New. But verse 11 is really interesting. It says, I've hidden your word in my heart so that I might not sin against you. In other words, you know, uh, I forget who said it, but the concept is... You know, you if you don't ever get God's word in your heart, you can't obey Him, right? So if if you if you can't get it in your heart, it means you haven't read it, you haven't looked at it, you haven't listened to it, you haven't you haven't taken it from outside and put it in inside. So there's incongruence is the word of God is out here when the word of God should be in here, right? And the more you put the word of God inside of you, the more congruent your life will become, because you know His ways, you know His. commands you know his truth like we're talking about with Kayla the testimony about her beginning to know what that worry is an attack from the enemy and that we don't have to we don't have to live we don't have to cope with worry we can actually do away that's why Jesus says don't worry because you don't actually have to he's given you the power so it's helpful to know that listen to it in the message it's really interesting in the message version and this is a paraphrase it says how can a young person live a clean life by carefully reading the map of your word I love that. It's about direction. I'm single-minded in pursuit of you. Don't let me miss the road signs you've posted. I've banked your promises in the vault of my heart, so I won't send myself bankrupt. (laughs) I would have liked to have known Eugene Peterson, the the guy who who, um, paraphrased the Message Bible. He'd be an interesting guy, I think. Here's another one. Rebellion is another another, uh, way that we find ourselves incongruent. I know better, but I want to do what I want to do. It's just flat-out rebellion. Listen, this one's really dangerous, right? It, the the original language for this really is interesting. It's it's actually a um, uh, a concept about shooting an arrow toward a target. And so the thought is, you know, people can the greasy grace mindset says, well, what's the big deal if I miss the mark anyway? I mean, you know, Jesus, grace, right? Like, well, that's True, to some degree, in the sense that you're eternal, um, you know, you're not going to be internally condemned at all. But the whole idea of this this word in the original language, it means to miss the mark, and because of missing the mark, you don't share in the prize. Right? So you go, you're an archer, and you go and you compete, and you just fire randomly, and you miss everything, and you think, oh, I'm going to get the prize anyway. Right? That's the, that's the concept of this generation where everybody gets a trophy. Right? That's not a generational thing. That's a demonic thing, right? That you're just, hey, it's just going to be okay. If I can do nothing about my marriage, I can ignore parenting. I, you know, go down the list. Pick whatever it is. I can ignore my own soul. I can, I, and I, but I'm going to do it at my own peril, at least in this world. And God's challenge to us is, hey, don't do that. I'm I'm giving you some some direction. I'm giving you these road signs. I want you to hide my word in your heart because there's a destination and there's a path that I want you on. And getting away from that destination, that path, is not just detrimental to you, but it's detrimental to everyone around you. As a father, if you rebel against leading your children, your children will end up in the same boat you're in. They're going to end up just as bad, just as broken, just as hurt as you. So that leaning into it and say, you know what, at some point my kids have to make their own decision. But until then, I'm going to make the decision for them until they learn how to do it themselves. So what happened, we, we had friends parenting, just to kind of a side note. The way they would do is they, they said, listen, we have all this responsibility as an adult in a basket that we're going to hand to you little by little, right, not all at the same time. And if we hand you something and you can't handle it, we're going to take it away from you and put it back in the basket until such time as you can handle it. And then at some point when you go off to college, Anything left in the basket, you're going to get, and we hope you don't break it. But they probably will, right? So, I mean, just a simple concept of at at some point, they said, we're not waking you up in the morning to go to school. You wake yourself up in the morning. You put on your own clothes, right? At some point, if you don't do that, then, you know, no wonder kids don't ever move out of their mom's, you know, basement. It's because mom's still taking care of them at 30-something years old. It's like, you know, at some point, this... This disconnect, this dissonance has to be done away with. So how do you do that? And the answer is you have to hit the mark if you're going to get the prize. It's really important to understand. If you don't, one aspect of the word is that you get disqualified. Now, again, I don't believe that's eternal disqualification. I believe I believe if you're saved, man, you're saved. God's, you're heaven ready in that sense. But you are ineffective in this world. And the mission that God's called us to will suffer because of this dissonance. So... This is an interesting scripture. This is Romans 5, 12. It says, sin came into the world because of what one man did, Adam, right? And listen to this. It says, and with sin came death. Now, here's the beautiful thing about salvation, about Jesus. Jesus comes, and because he died on your behalf, you get eternal life if you choose to believe in the work of the cross, what he's done for you, and you accept that. That's the gospel, as simple as as I can make it, right? But... So he took eternal death for us. He took that eternal, all of the, the wrath of God was poured out on him, so there's no wrath of God left for you. But if you, if you continue in sin, even after you become a believer, if you refuse to walk away from the patterns, if you, you say, you know what, I've got to get my mind transformed. This is what Scripture teaches us to do. Our heart is brand new. We get a, a new heart, right, and new nature. But our mind isn't new. So the mind has to be transformed. So you have to stop thinking the world's way. Stop thinking in those contexts and learn how God wants you to think. And be transformed by this renewing of your mind. Because here's what the Bible says. It says, and with sin came death. So maybe it's not eternal death. If you miss the mark and you choose to have that, that incongruence, that, that you know, the inside of you, is not, is not where it needs to be, so the outside of you begins to work itself out from what's inside. That's what Jesus said. Whatever's on the inside is going to come out. That's why I told the Pharisees, if you wash the inside of the cup, the outside will become clean also. It's almost like a side effect, right? And so here's what happens in our world, especially in the South. <clears throat> I deal mostly with moralism. It's just a whole understanding of, uh, if I do right, I get right. If I do wrong, you know, I get judged for it. <laughs> but that's not the gospel. It's every country music song you've ever heard, but it's not the gospel, right? And it's help, if you don't understand that, our whole culture in the South will teach you moralism until you don't know anything else, and you'll be living a gospel that is no gospel at all. So I just want to challenge you on this. this it's really helpful to understand this because if you're sinning, if, if that's disconnect, like I'm going to church, I'm doing everything I'm supposed to, but inside I know something hasn't changed in me. So this is what begins to happen. Death begins to come to relationships, right? Marriages begin to fall away, kids begin to walk away. I mean, people—you just you can't have a relationship. Find yourself lonely, and then it creates this perfect storm. The enemy tries to create a perfect storm where now your loneliness drives you know drives you to bitterness, and you push people away, and you get farther. It's just this perfect storm. You can never win without transformation on the inside from the Lord. Another thing is death to hopes and dreams, and then you become bitter, and you say, you know what? Um, God promised me, but I'm not seeing it happen. Well, you know, some of the promises that God's given us in this world are conditional promises. If you will, then I will, right? If, if you hide in your, the, the word of God in your heart, this is what psalm says, you, you won't sin against him. There's this, there's this connection between the two things. Another thing is death to, this, to the inheritance that you're supposed to have in this earth. Whatever God promised you, one of the biggest ones is peace, I and mean, you just don't have any peace. Look, if you watch the news, if you feel your... Go read Proverbs, first of all, about this kind of stuff in Psalms. If you fill your mind with the stuff of the world, it'll, it'll begin to get you to the point where you're fearful, you walk in constant fear, and there's no hope. All your dreams begin to crumble around you. Let me just challenge you with this. You know, people are like, well, you know, you can't help it. It's the news. Let me ask you a question. Um, in Jerusalem, how many people knew what was happening... In, you know, South Carolina that didn't exist at the time. <laughs> and the answer is zero. So remember, Jesus is talking about the news. And he's talking about, in, in, if, if, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And the way he used that was from this cultural thing where a tower had fallen on some men and killed them. And basically what he was saying was like, hey, life is short, guys. So unless you repent, you're also going to perish the same way. So Jesus used the news story of his day. But think about this. Most people, I mean, just a hundred years ago, most people, the kind of information that we get in a news service is worldwide. The pandemic, stuff that's going on in India right now. Let me just, you cannot carry that. You cannot do it. I'm not saying don't watch the news. I'm just saying watch the level of what you let inside of you and make sure that it's matched up, you know, with, with what's already inside of you to push back and create an equilibrium of tension, godly tension in the world, where I'm praising God as often, you know, more often than than I'm hearing the world say it's everything's going to hell in a handbasket. See how that works? And so, if you do that, what happens is you just cut off the news source. Not all of it. I'm not saying be ignorant of culture. I'm I, I, I'm careful about that too, but but limited. You have to you have to manage this interior exterior journey, right? You have to do that. So another one is apathy. This is the last one I'm going to give. Let me get something else. But this is James 4.17. This is a way incongruence can come in is through apathy. James 4.17. If anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is sin for them. So in other words, this is what's commonly called in theology. Uh, you, know, you have the sin of commission, something that you, sh- that you did wrong, and the sin of omission, something you should have done but you didn't. So first of all, Good luck with that without grace, <laughs> right? Especially the second one, the sin of omission. What could I be doing? But here's the thing. As the Lord reveals those things to you, then he begins to hold you accountable for it. If he says to you, hey, Dave, I want you to spend more time in my word. Then now he's, he's challenged me in a direction, and, and, and I know to do this good. Let's say he says, you know what, I want you to give some money to this family in the church. And I neglect that. So I, it's something I know to, to do good. It's God's given me the mark. I've, I've pulled the arrow, or maybe I haven't even shot the arrow, but I've shot the arrow over here. So I shut over here, and, or maybe I just didn't do it at all. And so this picture of apathy is if I just don't do anything, somehow I feel safe. See, this is what gets us mostly in trouble in the world we live in. There's a, a famous Lutheran pastor. Not famous. He's kind of obscure, actually, if you don't know about him. But he was a, he was a pastor in, in Second World War Germany. And uh, he, he's the one that wrote the famous poem, you know, they came for the socialists, and I wasn't a socialist, so I said nothing. And, and it, he goes through this whole list of all the people that Germany came for, you know, the Nazis came for, and I wasn't one of them, so I did nothing. The last line of the poem is, and then they came for me, and there was no one left to say anything. See, that's a picture of apathy. Now that, in that context, it's standing up for what you know is right. He made a comment, fascinating comment, what he said. He ended up making it, they threw him in prison. He eventually recognized what was wrong, and he, he tried to make amends as much as he could. Um, and then they threw him in prison, and then he actually did not die, which most people who were thrown in prison did die, um, political enemies. And then he comes out, and he began to make restitution. He was, he was passionate about making restitution for, you know, in, as the German people. Um, but he made this comment one time in a, in a sermon. He said, I remember thinking, if I say something, they're going to cut my head off. They, you know, they're going to kill me. And he said, and I, and I think about that now, and I realize probably, he said, had all of us as believers taken a stand, he said the Nazis would have killed millions of Christians in, in that context. He said, but I am fully convinced that, that those millions of German Christians who took a stand would have saved 6 million Jews, 10 million total being killed. He said, it, maybe it was a few hundred thousand of us that took a stand. He said, the world would have been in an uproar over that kind of thing. So he goes, so it does matter. Would I have lost my life? Sure. But what, what would I have saved? It's a question he said, I wish I could have had an answer for. It's so something to think about. Here's the context of this. It says, now listen, you who say today or tomorrow we will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business and make money. Why? You do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You're a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say if it's the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. As it is you, as it is, you boast in your arrogant schemes. All such boasting is evil. If anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it's sin for them. So he puts that last phrase in the context of these guys who are living as if this world is the only world that exists so they're going to they're saying you know profit and godliness are the same and they're not and so what he's saying is look to you can go make all the money and say it's for your family but is it really right and so the challenge he's really coming after he says it basically they're asking Rather than praying and saying, God, what do you want my life to look like? Submitting your will, your, you know, who you are internally to the one who's external, who brings life into you. Rather than do that, what they're saying is, Lord, will you bless my plans? And so I want to challenge you. One of the ways that we get into apathy, I mean into incongruence in is apathy. I don't pay attention to what the Lord is actually asking of me. I don't, have a mar- I don't even know what the mark is to, to hit, let alone am I actually... Trying, you know, trying to move forward and obtaining it. So this can be really challenging. Psalm ninety twelve says, so teach us to number our days. I read this last week, actually. It says, teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. In other words, you have limited time. And the older I get, uh, you know, I try to add more. I'm like, you know, with technology, I got more time. <laughs> but at some point, time's going to run out, right, for all of us. And so we all know that. And so the, what you're doing in this world, is it what you ought to be doing? is really what God's saying is the life you're living and, and what you're giving away is it worth what you're giving away because you are exchanging time for something right So it's important to get it right. but here's the beautiful thing. there is grace for incongruence. Are you glad? because <laughs> this is this turned into a Debbie downer sermon if I didn't get to this part, right? So first Timothy speaks to this. it says this is First Timothy 4. It says, the Spirit clearly says that in the last time some will turn away from what we believe. They'll obey spirits that tell lies and they will follow the teaching, teachings of demons. Those teachings come through people who tell lies and trick others. These evil people cannot see what is right and what is wrong. Isn't that true of today? It is like their conscience has been destroyed or seared with a hot iron. Remember that part. They say that it is wrong to marry. And they say that there are some foods that people must not eat. But God made these foods. And those who believe and who understand the truth can eat them with thanks. And everybody said, Amen for bacon. Right? (laughs) Because without grace, without the gospel, you don't get to eat bacon ever again. (laughs) Thank you, Lord, for bacon. So, when we live incongruently... Um, it's not God who condemns us. So this is what we feel. We feel like something condemns us. But here's what basically happens. Our own hearts are condemning us. Like there's that dissonance that's created inside of us. It's like I know to do right, but I'm not doing it. And, the, and it's this, you know, I, I talk about grace, uh, you know, living under the old covenant, even when you're in the new covenant, as this low-grade fever uh, of guilt, shame, and condemnation, Right? And in that kind of what's happening, it's like I know what I ought to be doing, but I'm not doing it. So there's this low-grade fever that just never goes away. You never quite feel safe to come into the presence of God. You, you know, you're like, God, I hope, you know, I'm praying that it's gonna work out. But you know, based on what I've seen my life look like, it's kind of incongruent, and that's not good. But there's grace for that. Here's the challenge, though, is if you lead this kind of lifestyle, what eventually happens is it begins to leap. To lead to mental and emotional unrest, it creates behavioral problems like I mentioned before: substance abuse and other destructive activities, um, distraction to cope with, you know, as a coping mechanism. But when we persist in the behavior, what happens is if we keep going down that road, doing what we know is wrong, not doing what we know is right, having that that cognizant dissonance, that incongruity. This is what happens: that our consciences become seared. It's like this burned tissue becomes scarred, and it loses its ability to feel. Now here's what begins to happen. because we've all been like you, you watch something on TV, right? And if you'd have watched it 20 years ago, you would have been appalled, like the violence and some of the things, because the, the culture tends to escalate, right? And so, But what happens is it's like, you know, it's like the lobster thrown in the pot, and as it begins to boil, it, it's too late. By the time it realizes it's somebody's dinner, right? <laughs> and that's kind of what happens if you get caught up in the culture. The same thing happens. There's this, there's this searing of your conscience that what should prick your conscience doesn't do it anymore. And you just get accustomed to it. And so here's what happens. As a result, the connection between our choices and the consequences for those choices become difficult to discern. So one of the things I'm all, when I'm having a counseling session or talking to somebody that got a challenge or whatever, I'll say, I'll, I'll hear them say something. And I'm like, like, that's pretty obvious what's wrong. Like, why did you need to talk to me? Like, you know, do, do you not see that you're doing this? And I'll point it out and they'll go, oh, oh, okay. I'm going to have to think about that. I'm like, think about it. And then my favorite one, I'm going to have to pray about it. No, you don't need to pray about it. You just need to quit it. Okay, (laughs) stop being an idiot (laughs) because you're leading to destruction, right? And and God's given us the power to overcome sin. That's That's the beautiful thing about it. But if our life walk is consistent or congruent, then our deepest beliefs and values will enjoy greater inner peace, satisfaction. And here's the beautiful part. We will be free from condemnation, regret, and inner turmoil. In other words, you will have peace that passes all understanding. Right? That's what Jesus does. So let me close with this. The, I'm going to put this on the screen so you can read it. The congruence of our inner and outer lives is a leading indicator of spiritual growth. In other words, maturity means that you are self-aware. The Bible calls it sober-minded. You ever notice someone who's drunk can dance way better than they can dance? They can sing better than they can sing. Their jokes are way funnier, right, than, than any of your jokes. But when they're sober, they're like, oh, my God, I did what? <laughs> right so when you're not sober minded you don't see yourself act, you know accurately there's an incongruence and you don't even know what's happening so the challenge then is if i'll lean in if i'll say god will you help me to be transformed the bible says to to for you to renew your mind you have to do this the way it's done is through god's word But you have to renew your mind. You have to think differently. The word repent, we talk about this a lot of times. It has lots of different meanings. But one of the most beautiful ones is is to take on a new mind, to think differently. Metanoia, right? Think differently. And and the whole idea is not to think any difference. It's to think like God thinks. Or, as Paul put it, to have the mind of Christ. Right? And when you do that, what happens is you find the settling into you know things, sometimes that you don't even know how you know it. You just know it. It's been ingrained inside of you. I've watched things on, on, you know, online, and I'll be watching, and it'll be a pastor, and he'll, be, he'll say something, and something inside of me, it just like gets hit, and there's this, it resonates inside of me like this tuning fork. Like, that is so out of tune. What is? It's barely out of tune, but it's out of tune. And then I'll go back and think about it, and he'll, he'll use a scripture out of context or something along those lines. But when you settle that in your heart and you say, Lord, transform, you choose to say, God, I want to give you permission to transform our life. And then you become actively involved in seeing your life transformed. It begins to change everything. So a couple of scriptures. 1 John 3.20. If our hearts condemn us, we know that God is greater than our hearts and he knows everything. So let's take this for a second because it's really important. First of all, your heart will condemn you. Right? Because you know, it's like, I have not lived up to the standard. I know I'm not where I could be. I know I'm not where I should be. Right? If you stop right there, what happens is, then you say, well, what does that mean? And most of us will say, well, that means I'm not right with God. I'm not where I should be with God. Therefore, God's favor is not on me. Therefore, His love is not on me. You know, I've, I've sinned against Him. Now, He's turned His back on me as a believer, as a son. And that is not what the Bible teaches. So the Bible says, your heart will condemn you. It'll say, You're not okay when God says you're okay, right? (laughs) And so the next part of it says, if our hearts condemn us, we know that God is greater than our hearts. So there's something more, there's something more valuable than your inner compass, right? Just, here's what people say, just do what you think is right. Are you kidding me? Do what you think is right? You are, you frighten me just the way you drive, let alone making moral decisions about the world, right? Right? No, 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 there is a standard to do what is right. There is a right and there is a wrong. And too often we've, we've exchanged right for wrong and wrong for right. And the Bible says in Isaiah, woe to people who do that. There's something coming for them that's not good, right? But if you begin to recognize it, God says, I'm greater than your heart. I have something bigger. Grace is greater. The gospel is greater than your self-condemnation. If God doesn't condemn you, why would you condemn you, right? Right? but it's not okay to stay where you are that's not okay it's not helpful either we just talked about that but it goes on it says and he knows everything so here's the thought this is what you think we don't i don't know why we do this but this is what we do i've sinned you know i've got this pattern of sin in my life as a believer and it's just not lining up to where it should be you know and and you know god's really just not pleased with me and we i mean listen we read the bible and then we use phrases like you know we we Try to justify, God's not pleased with me. You know, he's not, I mean, he's just, he's a little T.O. I mean, he's, you know. I mean, we've picked these crazy phrases that are not in in line with Scripture. They're not in line with the Gospel. This is what the Bible says. God knows everything you did. Every single thing. While we were sinners, Christ died for us. As my wife says, on your worst day, Jesus said, man, I love you. I can't wait to come into your life. I can't wait to pour out my inheritance. I want to make the great exchange. All that junk, all that brokenness that's come from your sin and and missing the mark, all that stuff that's been piling up for years, that maybe even for generations, I want to take that off of you onto myself and give you peace and give you love and give you mercy and compassion and kindness. I want to bring you into my family. I want to celebrate the living daylights out of you. And you're like, no, 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 Jesus, I'm not good enough. Who are you to say... You're not good enough when Jesus calls you good. Now the challenge is, we often want to call ourselves good when we haven't repented. And that's not okay. But if you have, if you've come into this kingdom, and you are moving forward, maybe you're, I mean, I I watch people get into these broken places, and they just give up. And they're settled, and they're just hopeless without God. As a believer... And I go, man, I want God's kindness and his goodness to be in in your life. And so often we miss it. Verse 21 says, dear friends, if our hearts do not condemn, condemn us, we have confidence before God. So what happens when you begin to get congruity in your life? Listen to this again. But if our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence before God. See, if you get grace, first of all, and let that settle in you as you're being transformed, you can come boldly before the throne of grace for help in time of need. You can say, Lord, I have this pattern of sin in my life. And I know it's not okay, but I don't know why I keep coming back to it. Will you help me? And the only way you can do that is if you understand the gospel. If you understand grace where he says, I have, past tense, forgiven you of all of your sin. Only then can you come before the Lord and say, Lord, I've got this pattern in my life that's incongruent with what you what, what I know is right and good in you, will you help me? And the answer every time is the Lord says, absolutely. I've given, I've given you everything you need for, for life and godliness in this present age, right? It's a beautiful thing. And so let me wrap it up with this scripture. This, um, the world needs our congruence. This is Isaiah 520. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. Who put darkness for light and light for darkness. Who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. The world needs our congruence. This is what Pulpit Commentary says about that verse. It says, this deadness to moral distinctions is the sign of deep moral corruption and fully deserves to have a special woe pronounced against it. To stand up against this brings the gospel to bear against evil people. When they came for me, there was plenty to stand for me, stand with me, because I had stood all along. Wouldn't that be a much better poem? <laughs> right? Right? This is another, this is a Holman Bible commentary. I love what it says. It says, the prophet claimed that the people had their priorities upside down. In Genesis, Adam and Eve sought the power to decide good and evil for themselves. Isaiah said, to this generation had confused the two things. They had lost the moral capacity to distinguish between right and wrong. Are we not seeing that in our day? The truth is, it's been in every day. It's just easier to see because we've got, you know, more technology. It goes, it goes on, it says, living in darkness they could not see the light of God's goodness and His good plan for them. Having caused bitterness for the people who looked to them for leadership, they no longer knew how sweet life could taste. So long had they depended on their own wisdom and clever plans that they were blind to what God was doing in His goodness. So here's the thing. You need congruence in your life. It brings you peace. That cognate dissonance, that that incongruence in your heart and your life, that low-grade fever, right, of guilt, shame, and condemnation can come to, to an end when you understand the gospel, that God no longer holds your sin against you. <laughs> That's shattering to the world. God no longer holds your sin against you, right? It goes on, this is First Peter 3.15, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy In other words, get this congruence in your life. And then it says this, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that's in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. So what does that mean? That means if you get congruence in your life, if you get this sense of stability in the kingdom, it changes your world. It does. It changes what you do. It changes how you go to sleep at night. You can go to sleep fast this way. It changes everything. There's no fear of the future because you know God's good. He's not going to let anything. He's not going to. People say, oh, God's not going to let anything come on me that I can't handle. Well, that's not true. There's plenty of things that can come on you that you can't handle. But in God, you can handle it. See, that's the difference, right? It's a subtle thing, but that's the difference. It says, be ready to give a hope for anyone who asks you. So when you live this, cog, this, this congruence in your life, what begins to happen is you begin to be a contrast against the world that people want to know about. I remember the guy who led me to the Lord, his name was Tom. He was my supervisor in the Air Force. And I remember thinking, there's something about this guy. I, my, my phrase was, he glows. Now Tom was a good looking guy and You know, good-looking guys are good-looking guys, even to guys. Don't freak out. (laughs) I'm straight as they come. (laughs) But here's the thing. It wasn't his physical attraction or physical, you know, he was a bodybuilder. He was just a a big guy. He was a presence. He was a manly man. And that was awesome. But I knew lots of guys like that. There was something internal in him, something external that matched something internal at, at the same pressure. It's hard to explain. But I literally thought he glowed. And when I found out why, what I found was, this is what Scripture said. There were times, you know, just before that, there were times when I hated Tom because his righteousness drove me crazy. He always did the right thing, and I couldn't, right? And other times when I would be around him, his kindness, even though he was, he could judge me like nobody else because he was my supervisor. He knew me, and and he was clearly a better man than me. And yet he never did that. He never judged me. But the scripture I read, I remember captured it, said that, that this, it's like, a, um, it's like an aroma of light unto light or death unto death. Life unto life, sorry. Death unto death. And so this is, this is what I want to end with, with you guys before I pray. The life, if you are a believer this morning, there is a life in you that's trying to get out. Right? It's trying to express itself. In congruence with God's ways and understanding His ways, you're never going to do that if you don't know His ways. You don't read the Bible. Guess what? You're going. You're not going to know, right? There's this. There's this beautiful congruence inside of you that, when it gets out, it literally changes the world. And it doesn't have to be. You know, you don't have to preach to millions like Billy Graham did. Um, he was Billy Graham. Probably not ever been one like him. Maybe won't ever be another one like him. He's a very special guy, right? But he also, in his life, had to have that congruence. And whatever impact that looks like, the big or small of it, doesn't matter. It will matter to you and to everyone around you, right? And so you rescue your sphere of influence. We're all on mission. And you have people in your life that, that I don't I don't have any ability to, to connect with them right now. But as you connect with them and you build, you let them see who God is inside of you, the Bible says this, they're going to start asking about the hope that's in you. Why? Because everybody, everybody needs hope. So I want to pray for you, first of all, that you would find this congruence. That you, first of all, be honest. If you don't have it, be honest and go, God, I'm, I'm something, this dissonance, It's something's off. I don't know what it is, and then commit yourself. Don't walk out of here today going, that was a good sermon, Dave. Thank you. I studied hard. I'm glad you liked it. It's not my intention. My intention is to communicate something from the Father that says, I have what you need, right? But you have to do something about it. You have to make a commitment to move forward in a direction towards a certain thing. You have to aim for the target. You actually have to go after the target. Don't miss the mark. Commit your life change your priorities, look at your schedule and go, you know what, I'm spending too much time at work or or I'm not spending enough time with my wife, whatever it is, get serious about it before it's too late. Because it, it, it can happen so very quickly and you look back and go, man, I wish I would have. And you live a life of regret. And God's not into that. He doesn't want that for you. So I just want to encourage you. There's grace for your incongruence. While we were still sinners, He died for us. How much more Is he for you when you are leaning into him and going after the mark? And the answer is, he's always for you. And if he's for you, nothing in this world can be against you, is what scripture says. So I want to pray for you first. And I want to pray for this, that you would realize that whether you know it or not, you've been called to a mission to reach other people for Jesus. And it's not about knocking on doors and saying, if you were to die right now, where would you go? Nobody wants that. I'm just telling you. I didn't want to do it when I did it, and I definitely didn't like it when people knocked on my door, and I was already a Christian, so how bad is that, right? That's not what God's after. What He's after is, will you build relationships with people He loves? But Dave, they use the F word, you know, for every part of speech. Well, that's because they're creative, right? And God made the creativity, so they're using it wrong, but get over yourself, Right? And say, I can be friends with someone who's in gross sin. Now I'm not saying go be sin, go j- jump in sin with them, but the Bible says sinners love Jesus. And if we're gonna be like him, if we're gonna be congruent with Jesus, that triangle that's flipped over, not him, but like him, wouldn't you expect sinners to like you? And if they don't, that's an issue of incongruence that you need to address. Amen. And God's grace for you is that's his longing. He wants You know, it's not Joel Osteen who wants you to be the best you. (laughs) And whatever you think about that, we can talk about that later. But it's God's heart to say, I have a plan. It's a beautiful plan. Everything you need has already been provided for the plan. But you can't do it your own way. And you can't do it by yourself. So you got to lean into him and say, yes, Lord. Amen. So let me pray for you and we're done. So Jesus, open my eyes to the blind spots, Lord. Open my eyes to the place where um, what's on the inside doesn't line up with what's on the outside. And Lord, because of your great love and your mercy and your compassion and your kindness for me, Lord, I know a way has been made already for me. So Lord, help me to find it easily. Help me to find it simply. But Lord, I I commit to the journey. I commit to discovery. I commit to going after this. Lord, I want to give time and energy and effort to it, Lord. Because the outcome is not just peace inner peace for me, but, Lord, it's an opportunity to rescue people from the brokenness that destroys them. So, Jesus, we love you. We say thank you for challenging us, Lord, to be sons and daughters on mission with you. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much for joining us this morning, if you're watching online. Um, If you need any prayer or any kind of ministry this morning we are more than happy to uh, to minister uh, to you this morning and if there's something on someone online that would like some uh, prayer or anything you can uh, email us at dothancf.com uh, yeah so we appreciate you joining us and remember Mother's Day next Sunday just a reminder uh, we love you and we look forward to seeing you next uh, next Sunday